I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. It's Martin Shipton, and today I'm with Mike Joseph, who lives in Pembrokeshire, is a journalist, writer, and also a specialist historian in Holocaust studies. The Holocaust has a particular resonance for you, doesn't it, because your family was affected? Well, it certainly does. Uh, I hate to begin uh, my my first comment uh, by correcting you. I don't regard myself as a Holocaust specialist. I regard myself as in personal terms, who I am, which is the son of refugees from the Holocaust. But pretty well right from the the start, when I became actively involved as a journalist, as opposed to just, you know, the, the inheritor, the personal inheritor, my interest was in a way very much wider. It was about all acts of mass violence perpetrated usually by governments against usually minorities, for which there is a word, genocide, although even that word is contentious, endlessly contentious. Uh, And in a way, it's not surprising that people are forever arguing about terms, because you can't get much more contentious in human affairs than mass killings based on nothing other than the identity of the victims, or indeed the identity of the perpetrators. So, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm trying to kind of answer your question, but at the same time suggest to you that one of the things that, if you like, has fueled my interest ever since pretty well when the Berlin Wall came down is how on earth can you understand and cope with the inheritance of something like the Holocaust in this world, in the world we actually live in, in a world where genocide is going on right now. I mean, for goodness sake, when I started actively looking at what on earth happened to my mother's family and what on earth happened to my father's family, the Rwandan genocide was underway. Uh, Srebrenica, the massacre of, of Muslims, was underway. So, you know, it would be, in my view, blinkered yeah, just to look at one thing and not the other. Uh, and it isn't a case of saying, oh, well, you know, they're all the same. Every incident is unique. Every incident is different. Every incident has its own grief, its own victims, its own suffering, and its own consequences. And yet, when you put things beside each other and you begin to think, that's funny, there's something that rings a bell. And in a way, I'm kind of pointing to another thing that's always been there in my work, which is it's about connections, you know connect stuff that seems to have nothing to do with each other and you'll you'll learn something give us um, some background about how your parents ended up in cardiff mm. they were both german jews although as far as germany was concerned they weren't german at all they were jewish so obviously they couldn't be german and because their own parents uh, had emigrated west to germany from what was then Poland, they both held Polish passports. In a way, that was what saved them, because what's not widely known is, well, I mean, we all more or less all know about um, Kristallnacht, November the 9th, 1938, the first Nazi mass pogrom against Jews in Germany. Well, my mother and her family were expelled from Germany a few 
a few days before that because they held Polish passports and it was part of the the pre-war games that were going on between Hitler and Poland. And so they ended up booted out of Germany and on their way back east to where my mother's own parents had come from. This gets complicated, but put it quite simply, by one means or another, my mother and my father, who were yet to meet, both managed to escape from Europe and arrived in Britain virtually the day the war broke out in 1939. So that explains how, okay, you know, a couple of, you know, two out of millions uh, of displaced people from Central Europe made it to safety just as the war broke out. And my mother spent uh, a large part of the war in the Blitz in London. My father was a few years older than her. He had already started an apprenticeship in the optical trade in Munich. And I mean, the optical industry is big in Germany. We still use Leica and Zeiss and what have you. These names are household terms. Come the war, optical industries were at a premium in Britain. We had submarines, they needed periscopes, they needed decent lenses. That was the work that my father found himself in. And that's how he came to Cardiff. Because at the time, uh, successive governments had been struggling to try to diversify the economy of South Wales from over-dependence on heavy industry. And they saw that refugees coming in from Europe, not just Jews, but Basques and you name it, had skills, um, had contacts, had stuff that you know we could use. Uh, and the result was that all the way across the South Wales valleys in the 1940s and onwards, there were new light industries, innovative technologies that were being developed by political and social and ethnic refugees from one or another corner of Europe. And some of your older listeners may well remember the one that my father became the uh, chief engineer at. It was called Gnome Photographic. And it stood on Caffili Road as you go out of uh, Birchgrove towards uh, Caffili via the uh, Caffili Mountain. It was on a corner, which I don't know, old timers may still call it Gnome Corner. That was where the factory stood. And that was where, for a few decades, Wales had its own, its own optical industry, producing enlargers, cameras, projectors, you name it. Sadly, that's all gone. But basically, that's how they turned up in Cardiff. They turned up in Cardiff, they hadn't a clue, really, that it wasn't England. So that by the time I started going to school in Cardiff, I was born in Cardiff, that was the first time they realised, well, what's going on, you know, why is Michael being taught all this Welsh stuff, you know? So already, if you like, a new generation is uh, growing up in a new place. But there was the weight on their shoulders of the horrendous events that had occurred from where they had come and which had affected the family. Yes, they had two jobs to do once they arrived and settled and started, you know, building a family uh, in Wales. The one job was to show a positive face to each other, to their boys and to the world. You know, you don't live in the past, you live positively for the future. They did their best and they did, well, okay, I'm here to tell the tale, Uh, they did well. And of course the other job was to, to cope with the past that for them could never go away. In the case of my mother it was a particularly, it was particularly difficult to shake it off for two reasons. Firstly, she lost her entire family. She and one sister survived and 46 of her immediate family were killed in circumstances that, because of the Cold War, 
she never knew what they were. All she knew was they'd all gone. And it was really only once the Berlin Wall came down, decades later, that it was even possible to go to Eastern Europe, to look at the archives, to talk to old-timers and say, well, come on, what happened? But that's, if you like, going racing ahead. That was the first reason, that the utter loss of her life up till age 18. You know, what do you do with that? There was a second issue, which is that unusually her father had bought a house and actually owned property in the German city they came from, Leipzig. And although the family was destroyed, the house wasn't. If that house had stood in a West German city after the war, then the chances are that through the 1950s into the 1960s, you know, okay, the wheels of restitution would have ground slowly, but she would have got the house back. But it didn't. It was in Eastern Europe. And Eastern Europe socialist paradise, wasn't interested in restoring the property of expatriates, particularly, and of course, although this wasn't stated, particularly Jewish expatriates. The house stood and it was beyond her reach. But for the rest of her life, from 1945 till I got involved, she struggled and attempted to every opportunity to you know, register a claim, talk to the Foreign Office. Uh, every time there seemed to be some kind of opening of detente with uh, the you know, East Germans, um, said, hang on, we're here, what about it? And of course, nothing ever happened. So... Those are the two reasons that kept them, kept my parents in a state of continually having to live forward in, into the actual lives that they had created in Wales, but also thinking back and thinking, well, you know, there is still some justice that could be done, but when will it be done? Did this kind of family background have an influence on your decision to become a journalist? Well, I guess it must have. I can only say that I must have had an education in the business of arguing with authority. And I think that's probably quite a useful apprenticeship for some aspects of journalism. I mean, my mother in particular was always firing letters off to the Foreign Office or the German Embassy or or what have you. And it wasn't enough to say, well, hang on, you know, unjust, there's a building there, it was my home, it was taken from us by the Nazis, and then it's been kept by these Germans. And, And, you know, she wasn't only making the case in a kind of rhetorical way, she had to document it. She needed facts, evidence, papers, and so on. So in that sense, I guess there's something in what you say that, you know, I was absorbing without realising it that these are the tools of the trade. You know, it's all very well to think you've got the story, but, you know, show me the evidence. Where's the sources? You know, does it, does it cross-check? In fact, you became uh, a TV investigative journalist. Yep, I did. And that was thrilling beyond belief. There were two programmes, one that nobody remembers today and another that many people do remember, but those two programmes were pretty well my apprenticeship. The first was Weekend World, which was a Sunday lunchtime uh, programme, the predecessor of today's Ma, uh, Andrew Ma programme. in Brian Bray. Walden. Uh, Brian Walden was the presenter after my time there. Before him was uh, a presenter called Peter Jay. And the, and the particular joy of Weekend World 
was that it was, not to be too cynical about it, it was a programme that was put in the schedules by London Weekend, who'd had a, a very bumpy time as an independent television company and needed to get their house in order. And they came up with a brilliant idea of putting together a really worthy programme dealing with the, the upper levels of, of political life and debate, a programme that nobody would watch other than MPs. Uh, it was the elite of the elite. They, they reckoned that this would appeal to the television regulators, and evidently it did, because London Weekend kept their licence. And so that was Weekend World, which has um, morphed into many other things since I was there. The second was World in Action up at Granada, and people remember that, I think, rightly, because it was a programme that I suppose one way of putting it is that it set out to speak truth to power and to do it in a totally accessible uh, way using clear, straight-talking language that you know, the woman or man in the street is going to say, yeah, they're speaking my language. In other words, the exact opposite of the weekend world approach, which was to appeal to the chattering classes. This was to appeal, you know, to someone who's going to move straight on from that to watching Coronation Street from the next studio. So, yeah, that was my apprenticeship in, in, in media. And wow, what an apprenticeship. Later, your writing career took something of a different turn because you did become very interested in history, didn't you? Yes, although I'm not quite sure when journalism morphed into history. You know, maybe it's just that if you work on a story for too long, <laughs> you know, you've got to call yourself a historian rather than a journalist. But um, it didn't actually start as, as that at all. Uh, I've already mentioned the lifelong struggle my mother had to get her parents' house back, um, which there was no way she was going to. Um, it didn't as even happen as... after the wall came down. Well, that was the point. The wall came down. Um, I was living at the time in Penarth. I, funnily enough, I'd just been building a garden wall, so um, walls were on my mind. And it just struck me that something was going to change. Uh, a lot was going to change. I mean, in the West here, we were just struggling with the idea, well, hang on, does this mean that Germany is going to reunify? And what do we think about that? And... I thought, well, perhaps this means that it would be possible even to travel to Leipzig to see my mother's old house, or maybe it would be possible to see whether it's possible to get it back. And so that was how I became involved in my mother's ages-old claim for the house. I started travelling to Leipzig. And it was very eye-opening because you discover that when you are bringing an old injustice into a new context, into a, a new place, people aren't necessarily that interested. Why? Because they've got their own problems. They've got their own struggles. And in the case of Leipzig, the last thing that people in Leipzig wanted to know was... Who are all these people coming in suits from the West to close down our industries and take our houses? You know, we're struggling. We've been thrown out of work. Unification has basically closed down our economy. It's taken away all our welfare services, all the benefits that we've had from East Germany. We've got a housing crisis. And so the whole context in which I arrived to see whether it wasn't time to correct old Nazi injustice could not have been worse. 
It was deeply challenging. Uh, and that was quite a, a lesson in trying to walk a fine line between correcting historic injustice and not perpetrating contemporary injustice. Well, the story of what happened then I told in a BBC documentary in 1999. And uh, in a nutshell, that claim for a, a, a house in Leipzig that my mother had launched in 1945 was finally successful in 1993. We got the house back. And that's the point where my involvement stopped being that of you know a son trying to work on a... a historic family problem and started being that of a journalist or a reporter or a historian. Uh, and the reason is this, Martin. OK, it was one thing to get back the bricks and mortar uh, from which my mother's family and her, my mother had been deported overnight in 1938. But it was another to get the story of the family back. What on earth happened to them when they were chucked out in October 1938? And, I mean, that really hit home uh, with me. I thought, well, look, if there's one thing that I now have got to do, and if there's one thing which I'm actually trained to do, that is to tell that story. And so from that moment on, I started travelling further east, which involved going to Ukraine, which is what the part of Poland where my mother's family had been deported to had then become. Gosh, it's complicated. But that was basically what propelled me into turning into a historian of genocide, that decision. It, it, it's not enough simply to turn up in any particular place with a sense of wanting to right historic wrongs. You actually have to respect what is concerning people here and now. Well, if that was true in Leipzig in 1991, it was even more true in the Ukraine in, uh, in 1999 and subsequently. They were still recovering from decades and decades of, of well, at one point Stalinism and all the various uh, later Soviet versions. And as we know, the, uh, the struggle of Ukraine to cope with its Soviet past and to, as it has done, free itself from the Soviet system, it still goes on today, a difficult place. And again, the story uh, of what I uncovered in Ukraine was covered in the uh, BBC documentary I made in 1999. And it's become more familiar, I think, to us since. And, and let me try and put it in a nutshell. In the West, we became very rapidly aware of the, the nature and the extent of Nazi crimes with the liberation of Belsen and with the liberation of Auschwitz. I mean, those two, and maybe Dachau as well, those two, in a way shocked the West into understanding just what depths of depravity Europe had descended to. But they also created a kind of model of, well, what, did, what do we mean by the Holocaust? What do we mean by it? Well, it's, it's systematic, it's orderly, it's German, isn't it? It makes the trains run on time. In this case, they run straight into the death camps and in you go and uh, you come out of the chimney. And putting it crudely, that is how the West understood the perpetration of the Holocaust up to and until the opening of the Berlin Wall and then the Iron Curtain. And it's only since then that we've discovered another face of genocide, altogether different, altogether wilder, 
more disorganized, more based on the individual mania of individual killers and leaders of killers. And that is exactly the picture that emerged as, as I and many other researchers were able, finally, finally, to get in to Eastern Europe uh, and the former Soviet Union in the late 90s and subsequently. And in a memorable phrase uh, by a current researcher of these things, um, what we discovered was Holocaust by bullets, mass shootings, mass roundups, killings, in uh, sometimes in full view of the surrounding community. And when you think about it, that doesn't so much conjure up the image of the Holocaust as of what we now know about Pol Pot and Cambodia or Rwanda and, and the wild killings of neighbour upon neighbour that happened there. That's the picture that came out. And if you like, that also is the reason why, despite 46 known named relatives of my mother having died in those circumstances, there is no way that any one of them is ever going to be traced. The only person that I was able to trace was the leader of the killing. And that's, if you like, what focused me and what led me to follow the career of that particular um, SS man as he made his murderous way round Europe from starting in 1933 uh, in Berlin and ending in 1944 in uh, Chalon in southern France. And he killed his way from Berlin to Poland, to Ukraine, um, and finally to France, and ended up living a free man, a free life politician in West Germany in the 1950s. So, a great story which I'm at work on and which will one day see the light of day. Because one of the things that I think shocks people in an additional way to their understanding of the events of the Holocaust in itself is the way in which local community members who were not German were on some occasions not just active participants but the, the leaders and the, yeah. the main participants in the murderous activities. Yeah. That comes across very strongly, doesn't it? In oh, totally. Absolutely. It's one of the most problematic aspects of doing this kind of work, uncovering um, the, the, the pattern of mass killing uh, in Europe in the 20th century. On the one hand, you have the German state that fell under fascism, that was a genocidal state, and which in 1945 had to face complete destruction and a complete new start, you know, zero hour. And to its credit, has probably achieved a greater degree of reckoning with its own past than perhaps any equivalent state in history. I mean, I have been in and out of Germany many times now. I have German friends, German colleagues. I feel almost humbled by the, the spontaneity of both their understanding and the support of people of all kinds that I've received in Germany. And I think that's very largely based on this kind of whole moral reconstruction that, uh, that Germany has uh, gone through and continues to go through. It, it hasn't just been a one-generation thing. I think that it's, it's followed through most impressively. Having said that, that is clearly not the case with any other 
state in Europe that had any kind of involvement. And, I mean, one could list it and get into a great deal of controversy by just referring to the circumstances in Poland, for example. What was the Polish relationship with Nazi genocide? And, and you can list the problems. I mean, Poles were second only to Jews in terms of, you know, being uh, the, the victims of, of the Nazis. There's no dispute about it. Nazi Germany wanted Poland as a, as a slave country, and it went a long way to achieving it. Uh, on the other hand, like any dictatorial regime, the Nazi uh, regime was adept at dividing and ruling, and it was able to play on all the ethnic tensions that you would get in an, uh, a society under pressure between Poles, not just between Poles and Jews, but between Poles and Ukrainians, and uh, I mean, you name it. And the same, I guess, you could apply with variations across most of the countries of Eastern and Central Europe. In the case of the particular town where my mother's family ended up and were killed, the subtleties of what, what there is to uncover, what there is to know, are endless. It's like Russian dolls, Ukrainian dolls. Um, Again, in a nutshell, you could say that the Ukrainian community uh, during the Nazi occupation was torn at least three different ways. On the one hand, it was torn with sympathy for the Nazi occupiers who were offering liberation from Stalin, from, from Russia, who were offering a degree of their own independence, not independence, but a degree of their own uh, self-rule and what have you, under the Nazi umbrella, all lies, of course. So that was one part. Another part were loyal to the Soviet regime and you know, for both ideological and, and, and social reasons. A third part, Ukrainian nationalists who said a plague on both your houses will take to the hills and, and fight you. Each one of those sort of major threads in the Ukrainian community would have their own relationship and vulnerabilities with the Jewish community amongst them. And there the complications come in because the big tensions after the First World War in the Ukraine or in Ukrainian Poland were between Ukrainians and Poles, two competing nationalisms, each desperate to carve their own state out uh, and each eyeing each other suspiciously. And where the Jews came was, well, of course, some Jews were very keen Polish nationalists. Others were all for Ukrainian nationalism. And another lot said, well, no, a plague on both your houses. We think we'll, we'll create the new Zion. Thank you very much. Um, the complexity is really what I'm pointing to. And it's not an easy thing to summarize and say, well, it's like this, it's like that. There's layers upon layers. Now, you're Jewish, uh, Mike. Uh, I, I guess that you're probably a secular Jew. You're not uh, a religious man. Nope. For many secular Jews, the experience of what happened in the 1930s and uh, 1940s led them to a position where, while they may have had different views before, after what had happened, they became totally committed to the idea of creating a state of Israel. Now, 
I know that your view on this is quite nuanced, isn't it? What is your perspective as a Jewish person with all the history, the horrendous history that we've been talking about in terms of the creation of the State of Israel? Hmm. How long do we have? (laughs) I think the honest answer is that I have come a long way from the family I grew up in that I've described and the sorts of views that were common and current then to how I feel and see things now. And I expect to change a great deal more um, as time goes on. But to try and kind of give you a few pictures about, if you like, snapshots from, what are we talking about, you know, 60, 70 years of experience. The first thing to say is, yes, I'm Jewish, Uh, But I'm Welsh, and I'm Welsh, born and bred, and that in itself doesn't make you indifferent to the story of Israel, because as I was growing up in Wales, and probably right up to the 1960s, there was a very strong feeling amongst those who like me and many people in my generation, who saw the flowering of a new Wales, new confidence in Wales, not just civic society, but the language, culture, media, what have you. Israel was a model. Israel showed what could be achieved, you know, make the desert bloom. And the fact that Israel and Wales happened to be more or less the same size, similar population, that the creation of an ancient language or the restoring of an old language was a central, you know, issue. I mean, these were powerful parallels, very powerful. So if you put that together with my own family background, which, as you say, yes, you know, Jewish refugees, wasn't Palestine, you know, the last remaining place of refuge? Well, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. Uh, This is where we now come into things that one time seem like truths and then later turn out to be lies. One truth, which my mother was always very clear about, was that with the founding of the State of Israel, the Arabs all ran away because their leaders told them that, you know, they would come back victorious and push the Jews into the sea. And I had no reason not to believe that. Well, it's a total lie. But it's a lie which many people still happy to believe, because it's a comfortable lie, what actually happened, of course, as we know, and we know as a result of Israeli historians looking at the record since the papers became available in the 1990s, Palestinians were pushed out in an act of organised, deliberate, violent ethnic cleansing. That was what led to the birth of the State of Israel. So, difficult to be indifferent to a state which, on the one hand, rescues the remnants of a persecuted minority from Europe, only to create a new persecuted minority in the Middle East. That's not something that's easy to live with. And clearly, anybody, you don't have to be Jewish, to be bothered by that contradiction. And it's a contradiction which started to become an urgent matter after 1967. Six-day war, Israel conquers more land, more Palestinian territory. And at that point, there was just a brief moment where people, including myself, thought, good, okay, so now what we're going to have is 
progress towards a negotiated peace, Israel will give up land in return for peace, and there'll be an Israeli state within secure agreed borders, and there'll be a Palestinian state. That was after 1967. What's the year now? 2019. Um, It's a fairy story, but it's a fairy story which is still the political orthodoxy throughout the Western world. Right from the start, Israeli governments have settled the conquered territories from 1967, at first in hundreds and thousands, and then in ten thousands, and today we're approaching three-quarters of a million Jews living in occupied Palestine. So regardless of the particular temperament and colour of the Israeli government or international pressure, what have you, the viability of a Palestinian state when there are already three-quarters of a million Jews who see themselves as Israelis living in greater Israel, you know, it, it, it is a bit of a, well, it's cloud cuckoo land, to put it uh, pleasantly. What I've done in a couple of articles in the, in, the, in the last few months is look very closely at what, what are the, the, the forces that, that are maintaining this, this crazy situation. It struck me very clearly that there was something odd in the row that emerged in the last year about the definition of anti-Semitism brought out by this International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance. I think something like seven of the 11 examples that they came up with, you know, what is anti-Semitism, how, how do we recognize it, weren't about anti-Semitism at all. They were about Israel, explicitly Israel this, Israel that, what have you. Well, fair enough. If the anti-Semitism code isn't an anti-Semitism code, but it's a code designed to close down criticism of Israel, okay, you can have that, but call it that. It's a code to defend Israel from its critics. That, that would be fair, fair enough. wouldn't agree with it, but it would be fair enough. But to bring that in to what purports to be a code defining anti-Semitism is just semantically wrong. It's a piece of political sleight of hand, and it's going to lead you into absurd situations where, for example, the sorts of things that I'm saying here now would probably fall foul of half a dozen of the headings in the IHRA code. So I thought, well, that's rather curious. Uh, Let's see what other Jewish voices might find themselves accused of anti-Semitism for falling foul of this, this code. And, well, there we are. I came up with um, any number of examples, Daniel Barenboim and Primo Levi and I don't know what, including, interestingly enough, the first and most respected rabbi of Wales's only ever reform synagogue, founded here in Cardiff in the late 40s, uh, Rabbi Graf, and as a Berlin-educated, Berlin-raised Reform Jew, Rabbi Graf was an anti-Zionist. He wasn't an anti-Zionist because of anything that Israel had done. He was an anti-Zionist because he said, well, look, I'm German, but hang on, sorry, Germans have kicked me out, and now I'm in Wales, so, okay, well, I'm Welsh or English or whatever he wanted to call himself. I'm Jewish as well. But that's my belief, that's my faith, that isn't my nationality. And at that time, the fact is that the world reform 
movement in Judaism was anti-Zionist, explicitly anti-Zionist for fundamental reasons, that the belief was, yes, these are our beliefs, they are our matters of faith and of spirituality, nationality is another thing, nothing to do with it. It's really important just to remind ourselves and to remind the world that this idea now that if you're Jewish, therefore you're a Zionist and always have been and always will be, is utter historical rubbish. So is it your view that the State of Israel should not have been created? No, it isn't. At the time, and the time we're talking about is the sort out at the end of the Second World War, There were mass movements of people in their millions, refugees, stateless, homeless, what have you, across the length and breadth of Europe, from France in the west to the Soviet Union in the east. And these movements were partly spontaneous and partly inspired by governments. They were inspired, not least, by Winston Churchill, who... With the use, I think it was some matchsticks, demonstrate how the borders of Poland would be moved west so that uh, a large slice of Germany would be taken over by uh, Poland and, and resettled by Poles, and a large slice of eastern Poland would be moved west and taken over by Russians and Ukrainians and what have you. So there was no trouble amongst the uh, Allied victors in re marking the borders of Europe to try to create slightly more robust ethnic, you know, coinciding with state boundaries. At the same time, there were 100,000 Jewish survivors in displaced persons camps in Europe. Where were they going to go? Some wanted to go to America, some wanted to go to, to Palestine, some just wanted to go back home, but when they went back home, they found that there wasn't much of a welcome wherever home was. The one question that was never put was, well, where do these now stateless Jewish survivors of a European genocide, where do they go? Well, what obviously should have happened was that a suitable part of Central Europe should have been added to Churchill's matchstick map and create a Jewish state in the centre of Europe. Probably capital Vienna, that would be quite nice, nice bit of the Alps, something like that. I'm talking what-if history, and it sounds ludicrous, and yet that is no different to what was actually happening with the real boundaries of Europe and the real lives of people in their millions in the mid-40s. Why didn't that happen? Well, why that didn't happen was that a war earlier, the British had already loaded uh, Palestine as a future home for uh, the Jewish people uh, for reasons which we won't go into now, but were more to do with British state interests than with with, uh, Jewish interests. So the Zionist tendency in Judaism is immensely strengthened, but it remained controversial within Judaism up to and including the the late 1940s, as I've uh, indicated. By the time that the state was founded in 1948, there were still choices to be made. There was still the potential for a multi-ethnic community in Israel-Palestine. There was still scope for all kinds of reorganizing uh, in the Middle East. I'm not claiming to have answers to the global issues that have, you know, we've now all inherited. What I can do is say that we have a problem in the West in that it's quite clear that in the sort-out of 
peoples, refugees, stateless people, state boundaries following the Second World War, it was only too convenient for the European states and for the Allied victors to resolve its Jewish problem on the backs of another people in another land who had absolutely no right or duty or responsibility for any of it. It was an act of Western colonialism, which we now have to cope with. Given, as you say, that there are now approximately three-quarters of a million Jewish settlers in Palestinian land, what could possibly be the solution? Well, I mean, this is even more crystal ball gazing, isn't it? If we really sort of sit back and, 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 and kind of you know, look down on the uh, affairs of the earth from the clouds, you could do a kind of back-of-the-envelope calculation and you can say, OK, how many Jews are there in Israel? proper now, um, and indeed how many Israeli Arabs are there. And, okay, so you put those figures down and then you say, okay, um, what about in the um, occupied territories, the West Bank and, and Gaza? Um, how many Palestinians are there and how many Jewish settlers are there? So you put those figures down, you then add up the totals and hey presto, between the Mediterranean and the Jordan in combined Israel-Palestine, we are virtually at parity, the same number of Jews as Palestinians. So what does that sound like to you? Because what it sounds like to me is potentially a binational state. Uh, why not? What's not to like about it? Well, what's not to like about it is 70 years of war, oppression, hostility, fear, uh, I mean, you name it. Who in their right minds would propose a unitary state on the backs of a history like that? can't argue with it. But on the other hand, the two-state solution, please. You know, even as we speak, uh, Israel is bulldozing through extensions to the Jewish settlements east of Jerusalem, which will effectively divide the West Bank in half, so that the West Bank will be simply two separate Palestinian enclaves thoroughly surrounded by uh, Jewish settlements. So, if there was any serious intention ever to see the creation uh, of a viable Palestinian state, the one thing that has most reliably prevented that ever coming about is the Israeli state. So having made a two-state solution effectively impossible, what are we left with? I can only leave that as a question, but how we get from where we are now to how things may be in another 70 years, we'll have a look in 70 years' time. What role do you think British politicians can have in driving things forward? Have you spoken to your MP about this? I think it's quite easy for us in Britain to see the problem that is created when Donald Trump moves the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. It's an act of provocation. It's an act by which Trump ensures that America cannot possibly be seen as an honest broker, a reliable broker between Israeli and Palestinian interests. Why do it other than simply to say, Israel, you've won, you get the lot. So it's easy for us to see 
the folly of that and how unhelpful it is. What's not so easy to see is how Britain, having stood right at the beginning of this history in the creation and adoption of the Balfour Declaration, how Britain could create a more even-handed role as an honest broker. We're a long way from that at present. My latest article, looking at the long history and relationship of Christians, and in particular fundamentalist Christians, with Zionism, shows that there's, there's a lot of baggage that needs to be understood and reckoned with before a more even-handed approach can, uh, can ever happen. You see, there are, there, are two, there are at least two ways in which, if you like, British views uh, need to get, get up to speed with the realities uh, in the Middle East. Uh, on the one hand... You know, good old lefties, certainly myself when I was a youngster, when I was a student, saw socialist Zionism as an inspiration, as a, certainly as a model for a future Wales, certainly the idea of the kibbutz, you know, new forms of living, wonderful stuff. We need to understand that that's just the romantic illusion. It's not what Israel is. It is maybe what it might have become, but it isn't what it is. And it certainly can't be that while it still is an occupying power and an oppressive occupying power. So that's the one uh, thread. And, you know, having just lost uh, Israel's most celebrated uh, left-wing novelist, Amos Oz, the other day, I mean, he very much represented that uh, tendency, which... Unfortunately, it can only be said that it's, it's a voice from the past. It's not about the realities of the present. The other tendency is what is basically Christian Zionism. And it's a tendency which I have noted seems to be strongly present in informing one of the main lobby groups in, uh, in Britain, um, the uh, Conservatives for Israel uh, lobby, which is led in the Commons by a Welsh MP, Stephen Crabb, very decent and very middle-of-the-road MP. I have no bone to pick with him about um, his uh, civilised and moderate approach. And yet, he speaks regularly about the need for Palestinians to learn the ways of peace and freedom and equality and democracy from Israel. I mean, it's beyond parody, when you look at what happens in unbalanced warfare between Israel and Gaza, when you look at the daily violence that Palestinians are subjected to in the West Bank, when are we going to see reflected in our own political discourse here in Britain something a bit more even-handed, a bit more in line with what with the facts? With the facts, it would be nice to start with the facts. Thanks very much indeed, Mike. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week. Mm-hmm.